Wow. I'm so uh, excited to be with you, honestly. Uh, it's been in my uh, diary for a while. Uh, when Jonathan first uh, asked, I can't remember how many uh, months ago, uh, but I've been very, very excited to come and be with you tonight. So thank you for having me on a... a uh, sorry. You're right. There you go. Uh, oh, <laughs> that's so loud. Uh, it's so good to be with you. And, uh, you know, um, maybe put it down a touch. Can we put it down a little bit there? That's awesome. Uh, you know, this morning, I had a friend of mine that I've been communicating with. Uh, he's from Ghana. His name is Samuel. And we talk together every Friday. He, uh, uh, he's uh, a beautiful man of God who's trying to reach out to his villages and community and help people know Jesus. And I said to him, um, you know what, Samuel, uh, I'd love you to pray for me um, because I'm going to meet with a group of young adults tonight and uh, we're going to talk about something so significant. And man, he went on a rant. He prayed for you guys for a long time. And uh, I'm believing in God's name and because of Jesus' love uh, that over this weekend, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, you know, you might be fired up about Jesus. You've been a, a disciple of Jesus for a long time and you feel so energized. And, and I'm confident that the Lord will even further energize your adventure. But maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you've come, you know, all this COVID thing has come about. I better put my timer on. Um, all these COVID things come about and you know it drains us emotionally, it drains us physically and guess what because we're a unity it drains us spiritually. So you might find yourself here tonight feeling a little bit unenthused about your spiritual journey and I just believe with every fiber of my being God is going to meet you where you are. You don't have to pretend you don't have to manufacture a sense of energy. You know, uh, maybe I'm growing older, but I enjoy the worship more than the preaching these days. And I'm a preacher. That's pretty scary. You know, I spend time worshiping and then when, when there is preaching, I switch off. And I promise you that. It's just I love spending time in God's presence. And maybe you experience the same thing tonight. Or maybe you used to experience that, but it doesn't click anymore. And I believe in Jesus' name, you will have a refreshing from the Spirit by the time we're over. And maybe you're not a Christian at all, or you don't subscribe to the whole thing of Christianity. Maybe a friend invited you over, and you, you just, uh, you've got a, uh, you know, a free card tonight. You don't have to make any decisions about anything whatsoever. You, you just can check what we do, figure out what this, you know, uh, Christianity is all about. Uh, the awesome thing that I want to share with you over the uh, four sessions that we have, it's very basic structure of what your life is about. You will discover by God's grace answers to two questions that in our, in our time, and I've dedicated my life over the last few years to simply work with young adults. So you're the people that I love, that I dream about. I don't know you all, but I love and I dream about you literally every single day. I have left, uh, you know, the, the church environment 
where you know you have to do everything from plumbing to, uh, to, to everything else. And I've dedicated my life to young adults. I'm a little bit older now, 48, but I tell you, I feel just as young. Maybe you don't think the same, but I, I feel young, I feel fresh, I feel enthused. I feel that the new move of God in our country is going to happen amongst young, young adults. I believe it with every fiber of my being. And to that reason, I live until I retire investing in young adults. So I'm so excited for what God has to share with us. Uh, Jonathan said to me that the theme is Eden. The theme is Eden, the theme of, of your camp. So I'm just going to take a metaphor from something I'm familiar with. Daniel will testify to that. I am familiar with movies or I'm familiar with video production. So I'm taking that metaphor to share with you something you already know, but hopefully with a fresh light. So if at the end of the time we spent together, oh, well, I knew all of that. I say, yes, that was the intention. But hopefully it speaks to you with a fresh light. So I'm going to share with you four messages about what I call God's moving image. God's moving image. You know, if God was in the moving business, if God was in the film industry, it would be heavenward, not Hollywood. What would it be like? And this is what I hope uh, to, to help us think through over the next uh, few sessions. The first thing that I, I would love us to have a think about, if your life was made a movie, which actor would you hope to play your character? If you're Egyptian from my days, you know, I think everybody would love, uh, you know, Adel Imam, you know, he's a big head, but he's very funny. I wish I could be that funny. Uh, but I don't know what, maybe turn to the person next to you and say, when they play your movie, I hope some such and such be your, your, your actor. Tell them, tell them, what do you think? Maybe they don't look like them, but they act like them or something. If you feel insulted, hit them later, but not now, please. So anyone has a funny character that they share? Who would play you? Tell us. Anyone? What, 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 who would play him? I said Shrek. He's Shrek. No insults there. <laughs> Uh, anyone else? Anything interesting thrown at them? Who play you then? Bradley Cooper. Oh. <laughs> okay, this is humor me for a second. If the movie was screened now, what genre will your life be? Huh? What genre would it be? Huh? Anything interesting? What genre would you be, Jonathan, at the moment? <laughs> That's not what I expected, man. <laughs> you, more, you look like more of an action man, right? <laughs> hopefully not drama. Any, anyone here, hopefully you, nobody said you're a drama queen. All right. So what if I told you that you're not only a film, you're actually a filmmaker. And you're intimately involved in making up a movie about you. And you're doing it every day. And I'm doing it every day. It's a freaky movie. But it's a movie nevertheless. I tell you, I, um, when I was a teenager, I desperately wanted to get into film and television. Anybody knows Swinburne Film and Television, the School of Arts? 
is so hard to get into. So I wasted my year 12 because I was thinking I'm going to get into film and television. They sent you a, te a test um, in September. Maybe I did it the following year. Uh, they sent you a test in the mail in September or something, and it takes you so long to send them a storyboard and a script. And then out of 850 people that applied, they took 50 people for an interview, or in fact, 52 people for an interview. And out of the 52 people, they took 18 people into the course from 850, so I failed twice. <laughs> the second time I didn't get an interview, but I wasted the year. Uh, but I love the film I was imagining I'm gonna, I didn't wanna act, I just wanted to film, edit, direct, all that type of stuff. So as a second plan, you know, when you fail one thing, you, you do something else, I decided I'm gonna get into the video production industry. So I had a studio for about five years. And I did wedding videos, training videos, little amateur videos. I love it, absolutely. I do not like watching movies. I don't know if anybody, I'm not look like an idiot, but I don't like watching movies. They bore me to tears, but I love making little amateur movies. I love it. There's something within me bubbles up. These days, I don't get a chance to do much of that, but I absolutely love it. So anyway, because I didn't make it to film and television, I became a teacher. If you can't do teach, that's really that motto you all the time. So I became a media study teacher in an old boys school uh, in, in um, what is it called? Uh, next to Mitchum, Donvale. And I was looking after all the media studies, so I had a studio and so on. So anyway, being the media studies teachers, all the kids think, all the students were secondary school students, they think like I'm the encyclopedia of movies. So every time they come into they watch the movie with their parents, watch a movie with Tom, Dick and Harry, they watch a movie with a stranger, they heard of a movie. It's like they think I, that I'm the creator of all the movies. So Mr. B, they used to call Mr. B, have you watched that movie? And I'm like, and not that one. Then another guy comes in, so have you watched that movie? And not that one. I'm like, it's, I have a handful of movies, mate. I don't know much, but I just couldn't tell them that because I lose, you know, uh, credibility. But anyway, in the back room of our media thing, we had a yeah, bookshelf full of DVDs. Remember DVDs? They used to exist. Um, so uh, they, it was our habit that the year 11 students, the VCE students, they would choose a particular film to analyze. So they would go in there and they would pick four or five films and then they have a vote and they choose a movie that we'll analyze. Well, most of these movies I didn't know. But I just let them choose whatever movie they wanted. But year 11 students, one year they chose this awful movie. I don't know if any one of you likes it, but it's a horror movie, Jonathan. You don't want that in your life. It's called the butterfly effect. And man, I had to watch this stupid movie three or four times just to understand what the story was about. It was so confusing and so morbid. I was freaked out the first couple of times. I didn't need to show year 11. You know year 11 students. If they think that you're petrified, they're going to tell, they're going to write it in the Herald Sun. Okay, you know, there were no social medias those days. But man, you'll mince me. So I would pretend that I'm really, really focusing, but I'm looking behind the screen. I'm focusing behind the screen. I'm saying uh, straightforward. Don't look to the left or to the right. Just above the screen. Don't look at this rubbish. But the idea is the Evan guy, he had a traumatized, um, you know, um, upbringing and childhood and so on. But he discovered that he can, he can travel back 
and changed some things in the past. And every time he goes back and changes some things, you see a brand new, almost like a brand new movie, a brand new plot. And then eventually he changes something, but it stuffs something else up. He's trying to help his friends and stuff. So he's trying to help his lover, little girl lover, and he stuffs something about him. And, and, and the whole theme is that little changes produce large consequences. That was the whole thing. And, uh, and, and he just basically went from bad to worse. It was like a, a pretty horrific, tragic experience if you're not into horror movies. But anyway, so little changes make large consequences. And here is the S in the next slide. I'm not really sure what. But it, the desired climax for that guy fueled his actions. So whatever he was trying to achieve at the end, he would change that part here because he knew it's going to trigger a different set of actions, different set of consequences. Eventually, it produces a particular outcome. And the changes he'll make here will produce a specific outcome there. That's really life, isn't it? That's really life for all of us. The little changes that we make produce different set of actions today because there is a desire within us to say you know, in, in a, the desire it channels what we do and what we don't do and this is what i want to focus on for a moment your desire equal your life's purpose you have a desire of a preferred future i have a desire of a preferred future in any aspect of my life. You know, let's, let's be parents for a second. You know, a parent has a different set of desires from that parent next door to them. So somebody wants to be the, you know, the, the tennis crazy dad of, a, of an amazing su successful child who's playing tennis like crazy. So they take him, you know, even uh, without their own permission and will take him to train every day and they work hard on them or, or that parent that want the child to be Beethoven, you know, they get them to play music until the child hates music or another, you know, parent that just, you know, is laissez-faire, doesn't give a hoot about anything, you know, everything chill. Another parent is extremely, uh, you you know, uh, strict. There's so many sets of parents and so many sets of adults and so many sets of young adults. But the reality is our desire of what we want to become determines what we do today. Our desire of what we want to become determines what we do today. It fuels our actions and determines who we become. How many of us know that the decisions you make today make you tomorrow? The decisions you make today will direct the plot of your life. And the desire that we have is an emotional picture. Listen to me. It's not a logical thing. It's an emotional picture of a preferred future of a certain type of person you want to become. So in the past, as I was growing up, I was thinking that everybody's trying to achieve something. So they want to achieve a particular career, they want to get some goals that, that, that they have about their own family or their own French groups or whatever it might be. They have a desired outcome. The older I get, I realize people aren't looking for a desired outcome. They have a desire to be a certain kind of person. You have a desire to be a certain kind of person that is actually motivating your action. You're not trying to make a lot of money for the sake of a lot of money. 
you want to be the type of person that respected for their intellect, for entrepreneurial skills, for freedom of choice. You want to be the type of person that can choose whatever they want to do. You think that money is going to enable you to do that. Or you want to be the type of person that through their uh, you know, achievements, edu educationally, they're going to be approved or applauded or respected or significant. You're looking to be a certain type of person in your friendship groups. It's not just I want to be, you know, uh, uh, in this particular friendship circle. No, you want to be in this particular friendship circle because it says something about you. You're in, a, you're in this friendship circle because they're the cool people or they're the nerdy people or they're the sporty people or whatever it might be. So it has an implication on the picture that you have of yourself. Every single one of us is trying to be a certain type of person. Not just achieve a certain type of goals, but become. You have a vision of your future self that is guiding your present actions. You have a, an image, an emotional image of your future self. So you might say to me, Peter, that's a bit too deep. You know, this concept about speaking about my life purpose is a bit too deep. But if you checked around your friendship groups, it checked about your maybe family, extended family members, or a church environment, or whatever you may be, you'll realize that people, when it comes to life purpose, can be categorized into simple three categories. Number one, there's people who are oblivious about their life purpose. It's like, you might chill out, man. She'll be right. You know, we'll just make up my decision tomorrow. It's like, oh, I'll make that decision today. After I'll make another decision. I'm like, what is the big deal? Don't be so, you know, dogmatic about it. It's fine. It's like somebody enters into a uni degree and he says, what time are you going to, 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 to uni tomorrow? It's like, whenever I wake up, oh, all right. What time, when, when are you going to hand in this assignment? You know, when I feel like I chill out, it'll be fine. Like, what's going to happen? You know, 10, 20, 30% discount. No big deal. Deal, you know, we'll be fine, or not the scout, whatever they call it, <laughs> or not the uh, Aldi at the moment. <laughs> but some people are oblivious to what's driving them to do what they're doing today. Other people feel obligated. They just feel like they have to be a certain type of person because of pressures in the family. In in Africa, in Egypt, and I'm, I'm I'm assuming some of you are Egyptians, but in Egypt, where you had only two hopes for your child, they they either become a doctor or mushmuhandis. You know, that's the two things. You're a doctor or engineer. That's the expectation. Every other idiot is an idiot. All right. So you might be so good in something else. You must. You could be the greatest plumber in the world, but you're a non-existent human being because you're not a you're not an engineer or a doctor. It's just that's stupid. It's just it's backward. But it, you, some people feel obligated. So I hated engineering with every fiber of my being. I hate engineering. Can you recall that? I hate engineering with every fiber of my being. With all due respect to every engineer. But what did I do in year 12? I finished year 12. I enrolled in electronic and electrical engineering. I did three weeks. And I'm like, what the heck? I don't understand a thing. Physics, physics is not a human language. This is like from the ancient Greeks and Egyptians. This is... This, I was obligated because I needed the approval of those people that mattered to me at the time. But others are oriented towards a particular 
image of the future. They look around people, they look around, uh, you know, they observe and they listen to stories and they say, you know what, this would make me happy. If only I have this. If only I become that. If only if these people do this to me. They have an image of, in their mind of what it will make them happy. Because as Aristotle would say a long time ago, he's a philosopher, a Greek philosopher, who says that the ultimate goal, the telos, like the end of what the human, uh, human race wants is happiness. He says, you do happiness for the sake of happiness. He says, everything else you do is a result of wanting to be happy. And that's what we do. You find a lot of people are oriented towards a particular set of outcomes of a certain type of person because they think that's going to make them happy. And where did they get that from? It's because of what they observed around them. That person has made this much money. They're so happy. That person has... has you know, this many things, they, they are so happy. That person has achieved this particular thing in the industry. They must be so happy. We make decisions based on what we observe other people's lifestyle looks like. And we assume and presume that that's the ideal. And I don't know where you sit on that spectrum. And I want to tell you one thing. It is not my goal or intention with all sincerity, to tell you what should be your desire. That would be stupid. Can you make me love chocolate? Like, you, 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 you can't make me. I don't want to share with you something that you should desire, but I have one request for you. You owe it to yourself. You genuinely owe it to yourself to choose the one thing that determines the direction of your life. You owe it to yourself. You don't owe it to me. You don't owe it to people around you. You don't owe it to anybody. You don't owe it to your parents. You, don't, you just owe it to the you that's going to become you and look back at you now and say, you were stupid because you didn't get me to where I wanted to be. You owe it to your future self today to stop and reflect and say, what is the one desire? What is the one type of person I want to be? Tomorrow, I don't mean tomorrow, tomorrow, you're going to be in the camp tomorrow, but tomorrow. What do I want to be? Because your desire will determine your actions. Your actions will determine the outcome of your life. So I want to share with you a simple fact about your life, about your movie. Your movie is a sequel. Your movie is a sequel to the first ever screenplay that was written in the Garden of Eden. And in that little script, you can't like that guy Evan in the butterfly effects can go back and change it, but you can change from now on. But I want to take you to the original version of your movie and show you two things about your desire that may be undercurrent in your activities today. And I'm going to take you to Genesis if you allow me. And I'm going to share with you just a few verses before we end up finish today. This is the story of creation. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind or humankind in our image, in our likeness. 
so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day when God created humans, Adam, representing all of us, the story of all of us. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man he had formed. The story of you and I starts many, many, many years ago. And in it, we discover that we are the image of God, essentially, distinctively. If you you boil it down to one thing, you say, who am I? I am the image of God. That's what you were created to be. That was written in your script, that you will be the image of God. So what does it mean to image God? To image God is just like that. It's to be a mirror that reveals God. To mirror God, to image God is like a, 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 a reflection of a, it's exactly where an actor is to a character. The actor isn't the character, but they're living out the character's life. Whether that's a real character in, in documentaries or it's a written character. You're not that character, but you're living out what that character would have been if they were on the movie. And you and I are in God's movie. The movie is hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of plots, of actors, of sets, of problems, of context. But one character that gets repeated. The character is the character of God that you are called to live out his life on the movie set. And this uh, idea of the image of God is never explicitly explained in any page on the scripture. But throughout the four, the four sessions that we have together, I'm going to show you segments of those. The first segment or the first passages uh, that, that, that speak of the idea of the image of God relate to creation. The second set of passages relate to incarnation, which we'll talk about tomorrow morning. The third set of characters, they talk about what we call the sanctification process. And the fourth set of passages that relate to the image of God are about glorification. I'm going to call them the four acts in the eternal drama of God. The four acts, the four parts of the screenplay, the four parts of the movie that is... Uh, your life. The first thing we're going to focus on tonight is the idea of the purpose. You have a purpose. You're created to be the image of God. That means you were created with a purpose. And theologians speak about the idea of the image of God uh, in Genesis chapter 1 in terms of three concepts. Substantive view, which means it's the substance of who you are. It's a relational view, which is something that you do with others and it's a functional view which is something that you live as a calling for so let me show you that very briefly so god created mankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them the first thing we know about the substantive view that it had internal qualities 
that when God created humans in his own image, means he's given them specific qualities, internal qualities, such as the rationality, such as the morality, the purity, the, 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 the freedom of choice, the creativity, the ability to understand and to consider the future, being self-conscious, being able to regulate your emotions. All of those are uh, varieties of the skills, uh, not skills, the characteristics and the qualities that make up your nature. So that's been something that's believed throughout all uh, Christian history, even from the days of what we call the patristic era, from the days after the apostles. The second view came about, which is called the relational, in about the 20th century uh, by several theologians. But they look at this verse when it says, then God said, let us make and then in our image, in our likeness. And, and some people say that that word uh, God, Elohim, is used in the plural. Some people say that's used in the plural just because it's the king language. As you know, when you say we instead of I, you know, it's an it's a, it's a, it's intensification of their value and status. Others say that's an allusion to the idea that God exists in community. And we read throughout the scripture, throughout the Bible, that God is a triune God. Whether that's specifically what's meant in the first chapter or not, we understand throughout the Bible that God is presented to us as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's self-sufficient in community. God is a loving community, right? God doesn't need anybody to love Him because He's self-loving. He's complete. Right? So they say then the view that we take from this, we are social beings. So the relational view of the image of God is that it's portrayed in relationships. And those relationships means being in love is the essence of our beings. It's the essence of our beings. That's that's why we have relationship. In fact, you read in, in Genesis chapter three that God customarily used to walk in the garden in the, it says in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. That means he wanted fellowship, he wanted relationship. So that being the image of God, you know, there is that we don't hear of, of God sitting with a cow and, and, and having a conversation about, you know, how's everything going? You know, I'm not saying I'm not putting down the cows, but I'm just saying God had a very special relationship with human beings, okay? So that's what it means potentially by the image of God. The third view is that we have a role. The image of God means we have a role. What is that? It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And look at this word. It says, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And Bible scholars telling us the idea of ruling over creation is what the image of God literally means. They say it's a function. Our calling is to exercise selfless dominion over creation because God is a power-sharing God, not a power-holding God. So he wanted to share his dominion with his creation and he had given them the qualities of rational thinking and had given them a great relationship opportunity with, with, with the creator God so they could resemble him and represent him in the world. So we see that there, uh, uh, in the Near East 
in the Near East Kings, in the time of writing of the Genesis, kings, when they subdued a city, when they conquered the city, they put a statue there. And that statue was like a mystical type of presence of the king's rule over that city. So uh, putting a statue, putting an image of the king wasn't just an image, but it was a representation, was a symbolic presence of the king in that place. And that's what they say, what Bible scholars are saying is the representation that we represent God on earth to the creation around us. So how God would treat the creation, we treat, treat, uh, treat that creation. But so often... We find scholars arguing about which one of those three views is the right view. In my humble opinion, they all right. Because when you read in Genesis 5.3, Seth, the son of Adam, it says that he was imaging Adam. He was in the image of Adam. What does that mean? He had one eye? Did he have one nose? What, what, you know, one ear? He, he was a representation in every way like Adam. So in every way, we image God in that totality, in the way we relate to God, in the way we reflect His qualities, and in the way that we represent Him with our roles. So my argument to you, that when God scripted your story, He had a purpose for your life. And that purpose... And that life's purpose, that desire, He wanted you and I to desire to relate to Him as our Heavenly Father. It says, you know, aren't you our potter, our creator, our father in the book of Isaiah? It speaks of God, our father as our creator. He intended to have harmonious relationship with you. He wanted your purpose in life to say, I relate to God. That's my purpose. That's my desire. That's the type of certain kind of person I want to be. I want to be the person who is known to have an awesome relationship with God. Not because of other people going to watch it, but that makes me joyful. It says in His presence there is fullness of joy. Then He wants us to reflect His character. He wanted us to be the actors that embody His character. He wanted us to be the type of people when others see us, they say my goodness, I could see the resemblance of your Heavenly Father. In a way you're like your kids. In a way, in, in not you guys don't have kids, hopefully. Uh, or if you're married, that's fine. Um, and and uh, or, or with your friends or your co-workers or whatever it might be. And imagine if we could represent God in everything else that we do. And we rule selflessly over creation. Not for our self-motivated agendas. You're an actor in your life's movie. And you're scripted to play God's character. That doesn't make you God. That makes you the person who reflects what God is like. But every script, how many people studied media? Anyone? Yeah, just the three of us, okay. In every script, there is something that they call the winding Corridor. The winding corridor basically is this. In the first seven minutes of a movie, they're going to give you two options to consider. It might go this way or it might go this way. They're taking you around twist. If you don't have that twist, it will be the most boring movie in the world. 
Because, well, you know the outcome. Oh, he's seen this girl sitting on the bus. He's going to end up marrying her. Right? I just oh, wow. Seven, 17 bucks or whatever much you pay up, give me my money back. But they have this girl and this girl and maybe this boy, I don't know what it is. But they have a variety of people uh, and, and, and you're going to have to choose what they're going to end up with. Okay, so there's a winding corridor and in the first script ever, we have a winding corridor. The serpent, which in Revelation chapter 20, it speaks of Satan. Of the enemy. Of the enemy. And the serpent appears. Who was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Like did really God want you to starve? Like you can't eat any of those trees? What a nasty bugger. He was trying to produce mistrust in our early parents in the relationship with God. He wanted to say, God doesn't have the best desire for your life. And then when, when Eve said, you know what? Uh, God told us to not eat from that particular tree, but to read from every other tree. Otherwise, we're going to die. And the serpent says, you will not certainly the serpent said to the woman for God knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be open and you will be like God you see he's painting a picture of being a certain type of person you could be that certain type of person if you associate with God's desire or you can be that type of person if you choose your own script so what did Eve do? And we would have all done the same. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. You know what Eve did? And you would have done the same. I would have done the same. We saw something else that became desirable. How long has the tree been there? Well, at least from chapter 2 of Genesis. How come all of a sudden it became desirable? And that's exactly what happens for you and I. At one stage, something pops up that is an alternative desire and a purpose for your life. It becomes pleasing. It becomes good. All of a sudden you believe that's what's going to make me happy. That's the ultimate dream. This thing I used to hear about it. But that's truly what's going to work in my life. Your moving image has two possibilities. Either your desired script or God's designed script. That's really... There's no fight God doesn't predetermine, you're going to have to do this and you have to do that and you have to eat, you know, uh, hash brown tomorrow morning and you got to wait for it, you wear red socks the day after, this rubbish. God respects the freedom of your choices because that's part of His nature that's been invested in you. And He allowed the movie to be like the butterfly movie, but hopefully not a horror one. And He's saying you can create the ending as you wish. 
You can make decisions that will produce the end. You can choose to follow my design script for your life. My desire for you to relate to me. My desire for you to reflect my character. My desire for you to represent me in the world. Or you can create your own. It's up to you. But he knows that desire leads to actions. And actions create your climax. The ball is in your port. What your climax will be. The butterfly effect movie. The director cut. As if the movie wasn't morbid, tragic, horrific, horrible enough. The director's cut allowed the main character, Evan, to go back into his, travel back in time to his mother's womb and strangle himself with the empirical cord. Little decisions, large consequences. My prayer for you, that you would stop, reflect, and choose the decision, the desire, your life's purpose. Because the decision you make will determine the future you have. What type of desire, life purpose, do you choose to embrace from now on? Let's sing the last song. And then